0: Welcome to Bankless, where we explore the frontier of internet money and internet finance. This is how to get started, how to get better, how to front run the opportunity. This is Ryan Sean Adams. I'm here with David Hoffman, and we're here to help you become more bankless. David, I just realized we talk about internet money and internet finance in the intro. We should also add internet identity to the list of things we are covering in Bankless. Today's episode is about Ethereum, its ability potentially to take back our identity on the internet. We're exploring that topic with Wayne Chang, who's a researcher and a core dev behind the Sign In With Ethereum project. If you haven't heard about this project, this is the episode to pay attention to. A few things to look out for. Number one, why Google, Facebook, and Twitter are actually banks for your identity. And of course, we are bankless. Mm. So is there an alternative? Number two, we talk about why Wayne thinks Ethereum can disrupt these Silicon Valley tech companies and become the standard way you sign into every application and social media platform on the internet. Number three, we talk about how this leads to a more sovereign, decentralized and free internet for the world. Crypto has been called, you've heard us talk about this before, a separation of money and state. This is the separation of identity and state and is perhaps even more profound. David, Why is this topic so important to you? Why do we set up this conversation? I know you were very excited Mm -hmm. to bring Wayne on and talk about sign-in with Ethereum. Yeah, sign-in with Ethereum, it's like one of those
1: small holes as a rabbit hole that once you go through the hole, it only gets bigger and bigger and bigger as it goes. The implications of a simple swap of sign-in with Google or sign-in with Facebook when it turns into a sign-in with Ethereum. It seems so simple, but the downstream changes of how that completely changes the landscape of the internet and how users on the internet are able, as a result of that, to go from a commodity to the big Silicon Valley apps to an actual user, once again, a free and sovereign user of the internet, it's quite profound. And it really does go down to the depths of what does it mean to have an identity, to be a person. and. Wayne is a deep thinker, both as a developer as to how do we come up with standards to implement this sign in with Ethereum vision. But really, what does it mean to authenticate? What does it mean to be a person as it goes to the internet? And these are conversations, Ryan, that we had in the debrief about human identity is a infinite boundless thing. Yet we know that it is captured by the current status quo of the internet because So much of what makes up users on the internet is defined by Facebook, it's defined by Google, it's defined by Twitter. So what happens to the internet when we can unlock it from the constraints of these Web2 apps and finally make a version of ourselves that's as limitless as the kinds of assets that we can mint on Ethereum? I think it's such a fantastic conversation. So if you want more of that conversation, you can sign up for the Debrief podcast, which is the only podcast that exclusively comes out on the Bankless Premium feed. If you don't have the Bankless Premium feed, there is a link in the show notes to go sign up for that. And so you can get that extra podcast into your podcast feed wherever you listen to your podcast.
0: On the debrief, this time we actually brought in Wayne for a quick five-minute explanation of Zuko's trilemma Mm -hmm. as well. So stay tuned for that. Mm
1: -hmm. One last thing before we get into the episode with Wayne. Bankless is getting into the world of Web3 tokenized content. So we are tokenizing every single Monday podcast, including this one, at collectibles.banklist.com slash mint. The Mint goes live on Monday. And if you are a Bankless Premium member, you are on the whitelist to mint one of the 100 NFTs that goes out with this podcast. Again, you can try that out at collectibles.banklist.com slash mint. This is a pretty fun experiment. We're also gonna have a Twitter space with Wayne on Monday, of course, as well. If you guys want to ask questions about the episode. There is a link in the show notes if you would like to partake and join us in this exploration
0: of Web3 content. Guys, we're going to get right to our conversation with Wayne. Bankless Nation, this is a topic we have been waiting a long time to talk about and are super excited about. It's in our bull case for 2023, isn't it, David? Sign in with Ethereum, and we've got the perfect guest to help us out with this topic. Wayne Chang is the co-author of of the Sign In With Ethereum EIP. It's called EIP 4361. That is the Ethereum Improvement Proposal that is proposing the properties of Sign In With Ethereum. And he's also the co-founder and CEO of Spruce, which is a company that's working to grow this very important standard. And what Sign In With Ethereum is doing is trying to make the internet more user-first. Wayne, welcome to Bankless.
2: Thanks so much for having me. This is great. Well, I want
0: to start with a big question in people's minds. Identity on the internet. Yeah is identity on the internet broken today.
2: We have to first define what identity means because that's a very overloaded word and means a lot of things to different people, right? So okay. there's definitions from like standards organizations like NIST, and ISO that say identity is a set of attributes around an entity. How useful is that? You know, maybe to certain implementers. There are other groups that have other opinions about identity. I'm just talking about technical specification, what some technical organizations think. They're non-technical interpretations, of course. But some more useful and holistic definitions. For example, our identity is the way that we recognize, remember, and respond to people and things. So broader than just a really technical definition, right? So and typically identity is only useful in a context, uh, functional identity versus so-called foundational identity, that you're a human on this earth, maybe as part of a nation is something closer to foundational identity in semantics. But functional identity, hey, I want to you know show that I can drive this car. Or I want to go to the bank and access my account. Or I want to log in and see my cat pictures in storage somewhere. Right? Those are more functional identity oriented.
1: A conversation that we've had on Bankless frequently, we've had this conversation with Chris Dixon. It's come up a number of times in Bankless. Is that the internet was not built with a native payments system. There was not money on the internet when we created it. Uh-huh. And as a result of that, that's had some downstream effects. It's created the advertising model. Uh, it's turned internet-going adventurers into commodities for these big applications like Facebook and Instagram. I'm wondering, Wayne, if it's a fair to frame this conversation that we're about to have as similar to the internet was also not built with identity primitives in it from day one either, and the downstream effects of that are kind of the paradigm that we find ourselves in today with Web2. Log in with Facebook, log in with Twitter, login with Instagram. Is that like a fair kind of foundation for setting the table of this conversation?
2: I think that's very fair. And another example of sort of the vestigial artifacts from ARPANET, when you had a bunch of highly trusted universities setting up networks to talk to each other, and there was just inherent trust because you basically knew everyone as part of that network, you did not have to do that much adversarial thinking. To make those systems secure, because you know you had local trust, but as we scaled up, you know those things weren't baked into the core protocol, and we're starting to run into those problems. And there are some market solutions to those things, sometimes with adverse incentives. So yeah, I think that's a pretty good description of why we are where we are now.
0: Can we talk a little bit about identity? Because I do want to get to that that question of is identity on the internet broken? But I still feel like we're in the definitional phase of what identity on the internet is. Practically, what is identity on the internet. I think I guess my identity in the real world is let me see it's probably there's a nation state component to it. So I have a driver's license and a passport and a social security number and I'm an American citizen. I'm also a Canadian citizen, so I have a Canadian passport as well. That's a piece of it. It's also somewhat socially defined, yeah. I suppose. Like when we say like, I identify as, yeah. right. And I might identify as a particular gender or a particular like religious affiliation, or I certainly identify as a, probably a crypto native an Ethereum, somebody from the bankless nation. Yeah. These are all identities that I have, but I also personally identify as a dad for instance. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, someone on the internet would say, I also identify as an AI that is under much dispute, but like, What do we mean when we say, so that's a real world, but what do we mean when we say identity on the internet? I guess for me, it would be like, okay, well, I have an email address and that is some sort of identity. And if it's a Gmail account, then I can sign in with my Google account in places. I have an Apple ID, maybe. I have probably a Facebook ID. I have a Twitter ID. I have a, a password manager with all of these identifications, I suppose, to all of these various web applications and then I also have like, you know, social media profiles yep. that sort of tell you who I am. So maybe LinkedIn is my professional presence and yeah. Twitter is kind of like, you know, I don't know what Twitter is. It's some kind of bio combination of whatever I am on Twitter. But what is the digital identity and how does that intersect with the, like, what are we actually talking about today in, in the current state? When I even ask the question of, is identity on the internet broken? What is identity on the internet?
2: Yeah. And I think, Part of the answer to what is identity on the internet has to do with what are you trying to do, right? And depending on that, a lot of things are relevant or not. Identity is just such a contextual thing that you really need to describe scenarios, whether it's even, you know, you have to present your password somewhere to get into another country. That is a scenario that makes that part of you relevant. And as you alluded to having a professional presence, you have different identities for different contexts in your life when you're with your family, it's probably a different personality even than when you're at work. Think about your work Slack versus maybe you're hanging out with people on Discord or in a WhatsApp group. It's a different dynamic, and you bring different aspects of yourself to those places, right? So it's not necessarily the case that you can just have you know, everything in every context and what makes sense to people. In fact, when you're, you know, your work self, you actually don't want to bring up a lot of things that might not be relevant if you're just trying to do your job and a good one at that. And likewise, you don't want to bring your work stuff necessarily to social media sites where you're just really trying to enjoy the personal side of your life, right? So these different areas where you already have different digital presences, I think are important to consider when we talk about identity.
0: So that's what identity is on the internet then too. It's sort of similar. It's, I guess, the aggregation, of all of these various logins I have, something to that effect? Is that really what we're talking about? It's my Gmail account, my Twitter account, my Facebook account, and Instagram, all of these things. Is that what identity is? And if so, who owns these? Are they mine or are they somebody else's?
2: Yeah, and I would say it's some combination of those. And preferably, the point of view is that you should own those and decide where and when those things show up, kind of like having a hand in poker and deciding which cards to reveal in what situation, right? So that's how we'd really like the internet to work instead of a lot of things being controlled outside of your purview, if it's especially about you.
1: I think as we're trying to get down to the basement of things, which we love doing on Bankless, getting all the way down to the core primitives of what makes the world tick, It's important to note that your identity is something infinite and unconstrained and limitless. Like who you are as a person is... Very different in almost any different scenario, be it on the internet or in the real world. Sometimes, to use my co-founder as an example, he plays the role of dad. Sometimes he plays the role of podcaster. Sometimes he plays the role of investor. Sometimes he combines these things. I'm sure he has musical tastes. These are all different things that make up humans and that also transcends across time. And it can also be constrained by the systems, the social structures that we inhabit in this world. So we talked about a form of identity as like the nation state, like the nation state bestows upon you a nation state approved identity at birth here is your identity. It is this passport number A37421, or your social security number, or your phone number. And so you are given your identity by a nation state inside of the nation state context. And that is actually a constraint on identity because, of course, you are not just the person that the nation state believes you to be. You are not just a social security number. And so it's important to note that your identity is infinite, it's expressive. It's adaptive. It changes over time. You select it. You control it. And then also we have our social structures that we exist inside of, our nation states, our Web2 apps that limit our ability to express who we are. And so, Wayne, I want to ask you the question, how has over the trajectory over the Internet, can we do an audit of this state of identity In the internet, perhaps we can keep this to web too, because these structures that we have, Google, Facebook, Twitter, these previous other like login with, you know, insert your Silicon Valley tech giant here. What is the state of identity on the internet today? Like, can you do an audit for us on this? Yeah. yeah. And, is <laughs> yeah. and is it
0: broken? Yeah. Is it broken?
2: So, um average person has maybe 100 passwords to manage, according to one survey in 2021 from WordPass. And because of so many UX issues, onboarding services, forgotten passwords, a lot of people have opted to give that job of, you know, attesting for their login to an entity, typically a large tech company. Popular ones include Facebook, Google, Apple. Twitter is emerging, but I don't have exact statistics right now. But a lot of these use a protocol called OAuth2 under the hood, which allows you to delegate access to resources. That was the purpose of it. So OAuth 2 was invented because of the problem where you have a photo sharing website and you have a different website that does printing. And if you want to print those photos, you can either download all those photos and retitle them in the printing site, or maybe there's a way for the printing site to talk to the photo sharing site directly, right? In the land before OAuth 2, we would basically give the password to the printing site and they would basically log in on our behalf, right? And there's a lot of horrible security things with this, so we want to move away from just giving passwords to those systems, although it's still in place in some places on the Internet today. But that became OAuth too. And then some clever people thought about, hmm, What if we could also include a set of photos, identity information as part of the payload that you could give as a resource, right? And that's how we got to OpenID Connect, which is the dominant identity protocol on the internet today governed by the OpenID Foundation. Now, the really interesting thing about OpenID Connect is if you talk to a lot of the developers and architects of it, they always wanted a decentralized internet where you'd have a bunch of identity providers that you could have an account with and you could sign in with this service. That was, I think, the intended effect of a lot of those architects. But what happened was a few intermediaries that played these roles started to grow and grow, and they had these network effects that caused them to be pretty dominant. And that's where we're left with today, with a lot of people using those services. And what's interesting about it is I think that people are giving up a lot more control than they realize. So if you have, you know, a Gmail account they use for everything and you sign in with Google in places, if at any point you lose that Gmail account, it's not just Google services that you lose access to. It's basically potentially anything you use that Gmail account to sign up with. Right. Because the forgot password button will be broken for you because you can't access your email anymore. And it's maybe could be preempted to reset across all your accounts, right? So that's a big level of trust. I don't know if everyone is comfortable that they're taking. Maybe some people are, and that's fine. But we think it should be a choice. Hmm. So we think that moving towards more direct authentication systems, like signing with Ethereum, without an intermediary, is a very exciting proposal. And we've gotten a lot of alignment with the ecosystem on this.
0: When you say lose access to something like Gmail, in that category of lose access... What are we talking about? I mean, you could also be like censored by something like Google. like you are It no-
2: doesn't have to be you for getting your Gmail password. Right. It could be someone, just a, a system administrator, someone who has access. And for all the great controls that we hear about, uh, we constantly hear about stories in these large tech companies where some employee had unauthorized access to a certain spot, or some kind of system failure mm-hmm. caused this thing to happen. Right? Or even there was a request by this other entity and they had to do this. And all of a sudden, your access is gone. There's a long trail of this happening in news articles, etc.
0: And that's the point. You don't own that identity, that authentication. Google does. That's right.
1: And if we would look at Silicon Valley as like a topology of size of tech companies, you kind of have the big ones, right? Facebook, Google... Apple's probably in there, Twitter's up there. And then there's like a bunch of smaller like Silicon Valley apps that probably use these bigger companies to log in with, right? So Canva, Pinterest might be having like a login with Facebook or a login with Google Button. And then, so all of these like smaller Web2 apps use the bigger Web2 apps for identity, right? They've outsourced the need for identity to these bigger Web2 apps. Putting on like a finance brain, it kind of feels like the banking system where we have these commercial banks like Wells Fargo, JP Morgan, Chase and they are signed up with the Federal Reserve And the Federal Reserve kind of dictates everything. Like they give or take away accounts, right? (laughs) And so does your commercial bank gives or take away accounts from you. And so what you're saying with like, because of this convenience, a lot of like our identity systems, if you choose to like log in with Gmail or Facebook, whichever provider you choose, whichever central banks of identity that you choose, (laughs) everything downstream breaks if you get deplatformed there. And so you've given like these central authorities Custodianship over your internet identity. And that's just like a bank. Is it fair to consider these like Web2 apps banks for our identity?
2: I think it's fair with two caveats that I can think of now. One, there's no oversight body for it like there is for banks. Mm -hmm. And even if you have one, it's, you know, how effective can it be? And it's not FDI insured either. So if you lose it, you know, what recourse do you have?
1: Okay. So that are some of the risks and drawbacks. Bankless listeners understand the perils of centralization. What about just like user data and other just risks and drawbacks of Web2-based login that we haven't touched on? Is there anything that we should really touch on before we move on?
2: Yeah, one thing that I really think about, and we'll get to this probably later in the conversation too, is just how much innovation are we stifling? It's always really easy to see the stuff that's there and then you lose it. But what about the stuff that could be there? And now it can't be there because we have the current Rails that are in place, right? And how I'm thinking about this is once you sign in, sometimes you get the dialogue that says, do you want to share this part of your account, right? And it is convenient for a lot of people to do that. But if you are a large tech company and you provide, let's say, a storage service or a photo service, do you really want to let the user share from a different photo storage that they like and not the one that's part of your closed ecosystem? I think there are a lot of interesting incentives that have to happen when one company controls the end-to-end login experience for billions of people, pretty literally, And there are some commercial interests at play, too. So this kind of differing of incentives and principal agent problems, I think, is at the very core of it. And when you move to these decentralized direct authentication methods and you have the right protocols to let the user build up their entire login experience and what data gets imported or not, then I think a lot more is possible.
0: And Wayne, are you also saying, if I kind of talk about, you know, second order effects there is like, are these big tech companies also incented to keep you in their walled garden, incented to like promote their identity platforms as the single identity? I would imagine that would help them establish a moat around their core business and kind of block out competitors, block out innovation. Are you saying that there's a negative incentive at play here too?
2: I think there is a positive incentive for a company to build up with their internal network effects, right? More stickiness through that, more ability to have people use the systems every day. And also it works so nicely with all the other pieces of the ecosystem right away. And it's more difficult for other services. So, yes, I think there's a natural walled garden effect here.
0: Just one last bit of housekeeping while we're on kind of definitions and the existing problem before we talk about signing with Ethereum is, can you tell us the difference between this term identity, which we've talked about so much, and this other term authentication? Yeah. So what's the difference between identity and authentication?
2: Yep. And I will add two more just so we have a complete set of stuff to talk about, right? So let's talk about identity versus identifier, right? So Wayne at SpruceID.com. That's an identifier for me, right? That's something that I can type into a computer. An Ethereum address, you could argue, is an identifier, right? But an identity is so much more complex than that, as David said. It's just pretty boundless and very contextual for us to even talk about it, right? So that's one difference.
0: And other examples of identifier would be ENS name, yep. domain name, something like that?
2: That's correct, yeah. Any kind of thing that you can use as a digital handle, and you can use that to, you know, maybe one identity is associated with many identifiers.
1: Is my phone number an identifier?
2: Yeah, it can be considered an identifier. It's kind of used in relation to the context in the system. So, you know, sometimes okay. you might log into a reservation service for a restaurant, and that's your main identifier. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And then we have the pair of authentication and authorization. And I'll tell you how that's related to identity and identifiers. So what's authentication? Authentication is basically being able to determine if someone is who they are claiming to be, right? and there are three ways to do that that we know of. If you discover a new category as a listener, please get in touch because, you know, you will win many prizes and things uh, because <laughs> what we've uh, determined and the identity ecosystem so far has been something you know, like a password or uh, you know, secret phrase. Something you have, maybe a YubiKey key that you carry, or something that you are. And that starts to get into biometrics, you know, things that you can't change about yourself so easily, like how you walk your retina, et cetera. All the modes of authentication seem to fall into these three broad categories. Sometimes, you know, you squint which one it's in. But using a bunch of these factors in real life or on the internet, we're able to identify that someone is uh, who they say they are, who they're claiming to be, or who we think they are. And that's authentication.
0: So the practical authentication for a lot of people is a username would be the identifier maybe, mm-hmm. or it could be authentication, and then password. That would be the something you know category, yeah. which is you know the vast majority of ways we log in. And then if you add a two-factor authentication on top of that, so if you guys are familiar with something like Google Authenticator or using your phone number as a second factor of authentication, is that tied to device? And would that be authentication for something you have, sort of like my device, I have this, I have my mobile phone, so I can type in this code that generates every 60 seconds. And then that's the second factor when we talk about two-factor authentication, right?
2: That's completely correct.
0: Yeah. Cool. Identifier, authentication, authorization, what's next?
2: Yeah. So we may use identifiers in the process of authentication to see that, oh yeah, that's the identity, right? Confirm the identity. And after we have an idea about who we're dealing with, we're able to understand what they might be able to do in the system. Maybe they log into a website as the administrator or a basic user, right? Those two different roles have different privileges within the system. So basically, that's what authorization is. Now that we've identified who signed into the system, we can figure out what they have discretion over.
0: So it's basically what you can do. It's kind of your role, yeah. right? Do you have the ability to, on Reddit, post a comment? Or do you have the ability, as a Reddit mod, to delete comments? That would be an example of authorization. After you've authenticated, then you're authorized to do a particular set of things within this ecosystem. Is that correct?
2: Yep, yeah, that's right. And drawing back to the example we are talking about before, when you're signing in with a service, they are basically the proof point. So let's say you sign in with your login service, you go to a resource and the resource says, Hey, prove to me that you're actually logged in and you are who you say you are. And then the login service will attest or not that you signed in correctly. And that's how these sign in with whatever services work
0: got it okay now you said there were four is the fourth just identity oh
2: yeah just identity yep
0: okay which is everything else we were talking about earlier mm-hmm.
2: yeah it's a notoriously difficult term to define even for people working in identity
0: so now moving the conversation to sign in with ethereum i guess based on those definitions what is the scope of sign in with ethereum we'll talk about what it does and what it is, but since we just talked about the definitions, does that give us the identifier? Is that authentication? Is that authorization? Is it identity? Is it the full package? Is it all four of these pieces or just a part of it?
2: How I would put it is that all these pieces are part of the identity puzzle, right? And nothing will just head-on tackle identity in its entirety. I think it's piecewise is the best approach as well. So signing with Ethereum uses Ethereum addresses as identifiers as part of authentication. That is all it tries to do. It has extensibility so you can work on other things like authorization but sign-in with Ethereum itself just wants you to be able to prove that you're the controller of this Ethereum account or this abstracted account such as for a DAO.
1: Okay, so your Ethereum address Mm -hmm. which I'm sure at some point ENS names are going to become relevant in this conversation Sure, but your Ethereum address 0 x 1234 is your identifier. Right. As in you are letting that ethereum address represent who you are, represent your person mm-hmm. to whatever you are logging in. Is that a way to think about this? Yeah. Okay.
2: For that session, yep, and maybe not even a person. A machine could use sign in with ethereum with that ethereum account.
1: And then what is the authentication? part of this
2: yeah so let's talk about wallet connect uh connect wallet rather it's a button uh, wallet connect is a protocol that allows you to do it over mobile but i meant to say connect wallet mm-hmm. when you go to a adapt you'll usually see a connect wallet button and when you press that your wallet pops up usually and you pick which account you want to use right and then at that point all your wallet's doing is telling the dap front end hey, this is my Ethereum address for the session, right? Mm -hmm. There's no checks being done, actually. Mm -hmm. So you could actually spoof and say any Ethereum address, even if you don't have the private keys to control that Ethereum address, right? Mm -hmm. So what sign-in with Ethereum does is it adds an authentication layer Mm -hmm. on top of that so that you can prove you're actually the entity that can control that Ethereum address. And then you can proceed after that. And all that
1: is, right, is signing a message with your private keys, right? So you're going to a website that is sign-in with Ethereum enabled. That website is like, hey, what Ethereum address are you? You give that an Ethereum address, and it could be any Ethereum address. Mm -hmm. But then the next step is to be like, okay, prove it. And that comes with signing a message using the private keys that correspond to that public address. And then once you sign that message, you can now prove to the website That the Ethereum address that you gave it is actually the one that you have. And then all of a sudden, this website knows that you have the private keys to this public Ethereum address. And that's how we log in with Ethereum.
2: That's correct. Yeah. And I think that some things I will expand on in that is signing with Ethereum is a technical specification. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like a cookie cutter for how that message looks like for the user to sign. Mm -hmm. And what's really important about standardizing this message format is we can get a bunch of great security and UX benefits from it people have been having ethereum users sign messages to prove they have the key for a long time right as early as 2015 16 probably we've seen open source projects with this incorporated what signing with ethereum does is got the ecosystem rallied around a common specification for it that cookie cutter template Mm -hmm. and when we can get everyone to agree on that including dApps including wallets then really magical stuff happens for UX and security.
0: Is that like a standard, like OAuth then? Is that what we're talking about?
2: So signing with Ethereum is a standard. And we actually use a lot of the same terminology and standards authorship that they use at IETF. In fact, we lean upon several IETF, uh, that's another standards body that where OAuth was published. We use a lot of those same terms in signing with Ethereum.
1: And so we're going through the same process in Web 2. I was, at the time, too young to really care or know about how the standards of OAuth came together, (laughs) but I'm at the perfect age to watch how the standards of sign-in with Ethereum are coming together. That's the frontier that we're on right now, right? We are trying to get people in alignment, in consensus with the sign-in with Ethereum standard, and that's what you're doing at Spruce. Is that a fair illustration?
2: I would say that we have progressed pretty far in that, Mm. and we have hundreds of applications in production that use signing with Ethereum, and major wallets, you know, actively working on support for signing with Ethereum. Standards are based on network effects, though. Mm. If no one uses a standard, it doesn't really matter, right? But if everyone's using it, all of a sudden it's really useful. So it's a coordination game for sure.
0: I think you're about to say, Wayne, that once you have some sort of standardization, like something like sign-in with Ethereum, then you get some benefit. And you're going to give an example of that benefit. What is that? What were you going to say?
2: So there are three main benefits, two really, really direct ones. One is more of an extensibility benefit. So the first benefit is UX. If wallets can identify the exact format they're expecting for a sign-in message, then they can make a really nice UX for a user to sign in. If you've ever signed a weird plain text message in your wallet, it doesn't feel comfortable and you're not quite sure necessarily what's going on unless you really understand the DAP. But if this is just the standard across all DAPs and wallets can just recognize this format and it literally looks like a login button, that's a much nicer user experience for people than trying to decipher a message with a bunch of technical bits in it. And the second thing is security. Sorry,
1: just to really drill this point home is that there is a number of different ways to input your Ethereum address and sign a message across many different dApps, Uniswap.app, you know, Compound, like OpenSea. But what you're saying is those are all individually like one-off solutions. And so as a result of those one-off solutions, how it's presented to the user inside of your ledger, inside of MetaMask, is also a one-off solution. And then you're saying that that makes the user uncomfortable because it's like, okay, I'm used to signing messages, but each message is incongruent with each other. It's a new experience every single time. And I think what you're saying is like the repeatability of keeping with a single sign-in with Ethereum standard can start to make users feel good about what they are doing and experiencing, which is they are just logging into a website and it's totally fine.
2: You're not giving permission to have your wallet drained. Exactly. And that's where a lot of the wallet draining problems come from in our industry when people just blindly sign things, you know, because they're used to signing things they don't understand. Mm -hmm. And I'd love for us as an ecosystem to get out of that habit. 100%.
1: And I cut you off before you were going to go and list another one. So what keeps going down this line?
2: Well, we get better UX and we get better security too. Because if the wallet can basically inspect the data inside that message to be signed, we can add guarantees, Mm -hmm. right? So, if example.org wants you to sign in with Ethereum, right? The wallet can identify that message structure, pull out example.org or whatever other domain is there and make sure that we're being served this by example.org proper over a secured connection, not a man in the middle that's going to, you know, example2.org trying to get us to sign a message so they can impersonate us with example.org. So this property is really important. It's called domain binding because it's bound to that domain. And the wallet will just reject or give you a big red flag, like if you go to a website with a bad certificate mm. saying, hey, this is you know totally wrong. Are you sure you want to do this? And so is this
1: the end of this story? It's like, all right, we got Web2 login, login with Facebook, login with Google. We can just replace it with sign-in with Ethereum and like, boom, end of podcast. Are we done here? Because I feel like we're actually just like scratching the tip of the iceberg. Can you kind of give us a preview of what's below the water about the implications
2: of this? Yeah, so signing with Ethereum is just the beginning, just the first step, the top of a very, very wide funnel of additional parts of the tech tree that bring us towards a more user-controlled identity system and internet, I think. And it has a lot to do with what I mentioned about unbundling the login, right? Instead of just one or two, you know, systems controlling how the end-to-end login experience works this is the kind of file sharing that you can use these are the kinds of photo services that you're allowed to bring in these are the contact lists that you can you know share after you sign in with x right we want to let the user define the entirety of that across whatever services they want because the only two folks that should have to agree on what to share is the user And the service they're talking to, right? Why is there an awkward intermediary in the middle who has a ton of discretion over what can be part of the session, what can't be part of the session? And can we do that all in a secure manner and also improve privacy properties better than what we have today in Web2? So thinking about how we move away from, you know, users logging into platforms to how do we get platforms to start logging into users' data vaults, any data vault that they want to bring to the equation. Right, That's the direction that we want to see a shift in.
0: Wait, can you run that bias again? So what is the paradigm shift there? I just want to make sure listeners understand mm-hmm. the implications of that.
2: So today when you're logging into a service, maybe a big social media platform or something, they will have this database. It might be many databases collaborating, but it's all under the domain of that organization, that company, right? All under their control. And typically you get access to that at their discretion, right? Mm. And instead of you getting access to a big silo like that and, you know, them being in control of if you get access or not, we'd rather see people bring their own data vaults with them to services.
1: Ah, Mm. okay. So I'm logging into Instagram and that enables me to get access to all of my Instagram files, photos whatever, or maybe perhaps I'm logging into Dropbox mm-hmm. and all of my files in Dropbox are there. That's where we are now. Mm-hmm. How is this relationship inverted to the point where like, I'm actually bringing my own data to these platforms? Can you just walk us through that again? Yeah, what does it mean to bring your own data vault somewhere? Yeah,
2: so Dropbox is a great example. So typically Dropbox can be very useful for people when, let's say, you're adding an attachment to your email. Right. Some email services have a Dropbox integration and you can fetch it from there. Well, why can't you just fetch it from any service that speaks this data file sharing protocol, you know, and you can just plug it in and it can be hosted wherever you want doesn't have to be on a domain that's approved, you can just add it as part of your session because you're approving it. Right. So that's the idea that you can bring it with you and things aren't siloed by default.
0: I'm just running through this in my head coming from kind of a DeFi world, right? And so like, you know, bankless listeners will know one thing that we've been so excited about with DeFi is, of course, you bring your assets and your money with you and we can plug those assets and that money via private key into all sorts of different user interfaces. So you can plug that into Zerion or Zapper or DeFi Lom or whatever, and it spins up. This is very different than the Wells Fargo banking experience where I have to log into Wells Fargo. They have my money. And they create this user interface wrapper, but they have the money. <laughs> mm. They have all of my money. I don't have it. I'm not bringing it with me. I'm accessing it through their app. And if you want to send your money to Robinhood, you have to
1: take your money yeah. out of the Wells Fargo vault and put it into the Robinhood. And get Hood their
0: vault. permission. Please sir, can, can I have my money? Yeah. Whereas with DeFi what's so exciting is you have your assets with your private keys. And you just plug that into whatever interface That you want, and one other side benefit is, of course, we see the DeFi user interface, you know, going through like rapid improvements. I don't think I remember the last time that my bank interface improved. Like it's just the same old crappy thing that it was ten years ago, Mm -hmm. and ten years before that. It just hasn't improved. Whereas with DeFi interfaces, they're all competing with one another to have the best interface that I'm willing to bring my private keys to and plug into. This is a similar, I think, in what you're saying is, the user has sovereignty. The user has sovereignty of their money. Now the user has sovereignty of their data and their identity profile, and they bring that with them into the app instead of the app housing this. Are we starting to understand the picture here?
2: Yep, I think that's exactly it. And then you can further beg the question, well, where do these data vaults live? If it's so decentralized, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's a natural question to ask. And we are really excited by certain architectures that are enabled by public blockchains for this. So if you have a smart contract and you can edit a little section of it, and in that section, you can put in a list of computers allowed to replicate your data, right? Running the same protocol that becomes the governance for your storage. Mm -hmm. So you can hire vendors. You can do things like encrypt your data before storing it. And, That is how you maintain control over your data vault. Because if you don't trust any of the vendors at some point, you can just even run your own. If it's open source software, it speaks the same protocol, even if it's in your basement. You can replicate to that new node and eject anyone from that smart contract. So you ultimately retain governance over your data, and even better if it's encrypted form for a lot of use cases.
0: So this would be a world where I could encrypt my data, store it in IPFS, or I could go hire AWS or Google Cloud or Microsoft or whomever I want, but it's all encrypted, and they just serve it to me as a commodity. And if all of that fails, then I could just host this on my own servers and still access it because it's my data vault.
2: And better yet, the resource resolution is based on a smart contract address, right? So there's no domain name to fight over. No central entities to fight over for DNS control. And you can even solve Zuko's triangle part of human readability if you get an ENS name and you tag it to that smart contract, right? So there are a lot of things possible when we think about systems that look at public blockchains as a route of governance. Mm-hmm.
1: We'll get into Zuko's triangle that's named after Zuko Wilcox. We've had him on the podcast not too long ago. But Wayne, this is probably, I think, one of those things, these dynamics that probably breaks people's brains if they're not ready for it. Like telling people who are outside of the world of crypto about the relationship between like, oh, no, you hold your assets and then all of these financial services have to come to you. That's not something intuitive and they're not going to understand unless they actually start to experience and play around with crypto. And I'm guessing a lot of people are like, okay, I kind of understand the pattern. I get it. I can custody my own data. I resonate with the whole web to service providers like Facebook and Twitter are banks for our identity and now we can store our own identity. But I think it's still going to be confusing to listeners to say like, all right, like you have your data. What's an example of that data that represents your identity? Like yeah. what is that thing that is in our little data vault? Like what's the story that users can relate to, to help them understand what that means?
2: Well, I think that one of the big topics in digital identity, not just thinking about decentralized systems, but just broadly digital identity over the next year, is going to be the mobile driver's license and associated technologies. We started to see the rollout of a lot of these pilots and there are technical standards happening at ISO that have to do ISO's international standards organization uh, determining how do you get your physical driver's license onto your phone so you can use it for a lot of use cases including you know if you're at a traffic stop if you're online etc right so how this is going to work is that it uses cryptography just like blockchains do and the dmvs are going to cryptographically sign a data packet that says, you know, these are the facts about your driver's license, height, weight, you know, even address. And that is an example of the data being stored. And there's really, I think, user forward ways of doing this and making sure that this is all under your control in your devices, never accessed without your permission and there are other ways of doing it where maybe you start making a honeypot a central database containing all of it for access by a variety of actors, right? So we always want to see us leaning towards these signed pieces of information that represent who you are to being under the control of the user and those are the protocols that we're trying to architect and combine with Ethereum accounts and other things that people like to use.
1: You use the term data vault to describe what this is. Like, okay, so if the DM can sign a message Uh saying, all right, this guy's got a driver's license, you can put that signed message into your data vault, and all of a sudden your data vault has Uh an object in it, and that object can prove to whoever you authorize the access to Uh that you've got this driver's license. And I'm assuming Uh this can really unfold in many, many, many different ways. I think that really the point here is that users now have... Uh And I'll call it an identity vault. Yep. An identity vault of there's a place for you to put things that you choose represent sure. you and through the gate of your Ethereum address and private key, yeah. you can gate that to whoever asks. Am I on track with this metaphor?
2: Yeah, definitely. Just wanted to add a bit of clarification too. So depending on what kind of information it is and what are the security requirements around storing it, right? Because personally, I would never want my driver's license to leave my device. I don't want it to be on a cloud or anything like that, mm. right? I want it to kind of even be bound to the device so that if I lose it, I just go get another one. Don't want people to be able to pretend I'm me. But If I have a grocery loyalty card or if I've associated my Twitter account to my Ethereum account and that statement has been signed off on, I'm more comfortable having that sync across my different devices through a data vault that can contain a cloud component. But whether that data vault is restricted to your device and everything has to live there or you're allowing a cloud component to it. That should be under your governance and you should decide that mm. along with what the security requirements of the credentials are.
1: Sure. Are there are there any other examples that we could talk to really just drive this point home as to like useful data that one would put in their data vault? Because we're not talking mm. about I'm like I'm not using my identity vault mm. to like mm. store the photos that I took on my iPhone because right. there's a bunch of photos that are just screenshots that I should really just delete. Mm. Are there other like use cases that you guys pass around on the spruce team that are good examples of identity data that you would put in your vault?
2: Yeah, and it's a combination of identity data but any other data too where it's basically i think this is one of the pieces that we need to get web 3 ux to the level uh and even exceed web 2 how many times do you go to a DApp again you have to import another token list or mm. point things or have to set an entire mess of settings for DeFi apps that's like liquidity settings for music apps that's you know other preferences If you could just bring that with you, no matter where you are, go to a different music app, your top artists are still there, You know, that really helps the UX. Mm. Because today, dApps don't have anywhere to store the data because they just write to the public blockchain. But a combination of that, where you can write to the blockchain, but also kind of like a hybrid mode, you can authorize parts of your data vault to come part of your session. We have data storage all of a sudden without compromising on any of our values of decentralization.
1: Vitalik, in his recent article that was applications that excite me on his blog post, he talked about identity, but he was bearish about identity platforms, yet bullish on identity. And really the point that he was trying to drive home is that Web3 identity, he's extremely bullish on, you know, the future development, but no one can really define what identity is. And when you tell me there is a data vault that you can put data into, I think one of the reasons why people might get confused by that is because data is such a broad category. And that's kind of the beauty of it, of there is no way to confine identity into any one specific rule set or like Mm -hmm. it can be it's generalizable. And so one of the reasons why Ethereum excites me beyond Bitcoin is because it's generalizable. It's Turing complete. You can do anything with it. And going back to what I was saying with identity at the very beginning. Identity is, you said, boundless. There are no limitations as to what your identity could be. And so maybe that's a a fair way to really drive this point home of what a data vault is, is it can be anything. And it's anything that you choose for it to go into. And it's, I think, really just a matter of these various service providers learning how to put data into these identity vaults and have other service providers find that data useful. Is that really the hard problem of adoption here?
2: Yeah, and that's exactly why we're in the Web3 and DApp ecosystem for the reasons that Ryan mentioned earlier. There are just so many different verticals experimenting with new ways of doing things day to day that we are seeing experiments across verticals like health records and legal identification, enterprise data. We're seeing a lot of dApps focus on artists and music, et cetera. These are all different types of resources that need to be shared in this more open and decentralized way across different platforms. In order to make it work and build resilient systems, we need to hone in on specific use cases, you know, prove out that it works across, you know, sharing one thing to other. For example, if you can share the entirety of, you know, the MP3 files that you have on your music mixer DAP to another one and import it, we have figured it out for that very niche vertical. And that can expand out to other categories and mix and match. So to the extent that we can experiment and have more fast iterations, you know, that really helps the evolution here.
0: Wayne, can we talk about, you know, putting some, because we're talking about some futuristic stuff, right? The world we live in is still a world very much of Web2. And we're talking about Mm -hmm. sign-in with Ethereum. We're talking about this idea of self-sovereign, decentralized identity that an individual controls, and they bring data vaults with them. I want to ask you about kind of the, you know, maybe the medium to long-term future, the far-off future. If sign-in with Ethereum is maximally successful, and we achieve the vision that you and the team and all of the developers around the world are working towards, what does that look like? What does the future of, of signing with Ethereum actually look like? And I wanna ask some specific questions. I'm gonna do this in kind of a lightning round because I want internet users today mm-hmm. to get a picture of what this world looks like. So my first thing is, how would I log in with social media apps? Does this mean there's a I can log in with a username and password, mm-hmm. I can log in with my Google Facebook ID, mm-hmm. uh, and then I can also log in with Ethereum? Just sign in with Ethereum. Yep. And I go, like, I hit the MetaMask transaction. I hit the mm-hmm. thing on my ledger. I hit, you know, something on my mobile phone and boom, I'm signed in.
2: Well, since you asked for the very strong version of it, Ryan, what happened was, would be that you generate a completely new identifier just for that interaction that's not correlated with anything. Okay. And you don't actually need to have any transactions to spawn a new Ethereum address. You just make a new one and you can sign in with that. We can then associate other data that you want to. To that session. And you can bring in parts of your portable social media graph. If you're signing in with Ethereum to a service, and it supports the extensions that are under development, then you'd be able to bring in a bunch of signed statements that represent things like follows, likes, tweets. And you can bring that as part of your session, or you can bring it out.
0: So the beauty of that is a new ETH address is spawned, that means there's no trail, essentially. I'm not linking any other privacy-leaking data to that. And that's the strong version of this. But the ability to just sign into any of these social media apps is the picture you're painting.
2: Yeah, it's not just one, and then you have to depend on the data inside the database, but you just have your whole graph with you. Right. Okay. Hmm.
0: What does this mean for password managers? That's the bane of my existence. You said earlier that you know the average password people have are 100. I think I must be a little above average, at least in the password category. Yep. You know, people use password managers for this thing. I don't know if you've been tracking yep. the success of password managers. LastPass just got freaking hacked again yep. a month ago, mm-hmm. leaked all of this data. Like people, you know, freaking out as a result of that. And, you know, as they should be, does this mean passwords go away? You were talking about this idea of authentication, which is something, you know, and something you have. Password is something, you know, and now we've moved it. We've done kind of a hot swap and now it's something you have, right? (laughs) Because private key is not something, you know, I don't know what private key is, but it's something I have. So does that mean we obviate and we
2: kill passwords and password managers? We've been trying to kill passwords for like a decade now, and it hasn't (laughs) worked yet. So I think that there's still going to be a long tail of passwords floating around, but I think that there will be fewer and fewer passwords as we see more passwordless login solutions make their way into the market, right? And I think uh, for password managers in particular, they do have an opportunity to move up market and start helping with other forms of data. Mm. Auto-filling things, managing credentials, being part of this whole idea of a data vault, right? That is, I think, a really good progression. I think one of the Archilese heels, though, is that they haven't necessarily needed to innovate on the custody side so much, Some of them have decent recovery flows, but I've just seen so much more investment in this category in Web3 and the wallets we have here. Different multi-party compute solutions, social recovery mechanisms, these abstracted accounts that allow a smart contract to participate in key recovery. Custody and UX are probably the two biggest problems in identity in Web3.
0: Well let's look at that right now because again we're talking about the strong version of this. We're signing with Ethereum is maximally successful. Does this mean I'm using MetaMask to log in with everything? Am I using a hardware wallet? What happens if I lose my private keys or if I pass away? Like this age old problem is like MetaMask is great for what it is, but it's not yet ready for mass adoption for everybody using it and for sign in. Is there a different future that a fully realized version of this would paint?
2: Yeah, and it's not necessary that you use a particular wallet, you can use the wallet of your choice, whether the market evolves for it and supports it, you know, that's what you're looking at. So I think that in the strong version of it, you don't actually have to pick from the wallet selection screen anymore. It just kind of knows. And it's a lot more transparent, right? Because you've already set up what you like to log into that website with.
0: In the strong version of this, too, do we have smart contract wallets where we have like, you know, recovery, social recovery type features? Because that's a fear yeah. people have as well as, uh, my God, what if this sign with Ethereum was my password to everything and I lose my private keys? I'm totally mm-hmm. got, like, what happens yeah. to me then?
1: We frequently talk about like the dystopian nature of like China and like disappearing people, right? But if you get the ex- ex- like exact similar relationship mm-hmm. with being disappeared, if you just lose your private keys, like that's bad. Yeah. We don't want that.
2: Yeah. So today we already support uh, something called DAO login, where someone can log in on behalf of a DAO. What? <laughs> and yeah, so uh, a lot of DAOs have these delegate lists that they um, mm-hmm. typically you can log in on behalf of a DAO if you're on that list mm-hmm. within a smart contract. And that allows you to, you know, administer bounties or manage your relationship with the service as the DAO, not you. So we support that workflow based on the smart contract. In principle, you could just have a list for yourself and rotate keys out. So we have the inklings and beginnings of this already, I think.
0: Okay. So again, maximally successful. Here's a pain point that I have in my current state. I was telling David the other day that I've just been opening up some exchange accounts, right? Uh And in order to authenticate me, they need my nation state uh, identification, which is basically Uh a JPEG of my driver's license. Uh And then I have to look in the camera and smile and get a selfie, right? And that doesn't feel very secure to me, mm-hmm. because if anyone has those JPEG files, yep. they could do the same thing and open account somewhere else. Yeah. Do we get rid of that in this maximally successful version of signing with Ethereum? Definitely.
2: The role of zero-knowledge proofs will only increase in identity, in my opinion. We have some clumsy ways to do selective disclosure today. For example, one of the privacy benefits of a mobile driver's license and other forms of credentials, when you're at the bar, you don't need to show the whole thing, right? And that's a big problem for people who don't want the bartender or whoever to see their address, because why do you need to look at that just to see if you can drink in the U.S., which is over 21, right? So in these solutions that are that the tech industry is working on, a lot of the privacy maximalists are making sure that we're putting just fields over 21 just proving that Hmm. you can easily imagine if you're familiar with zero knowledge proofs a little bit, how you might be able to prove that in a zero knowledge way where you have uh, maybe a date of birth or something. And there's some kind of circuit that transforms. So you can see if you're over 21 or not.
0: Basically my driver's license is proving that I'm a citizen of the United States. I'm not on an OFAC sanctions list, basically. So you're saying I could do that privately using sign in with Ethereum, zero knowledge proofs Mm -hmm. rather than, you know,
2: my selfie. So um, two parts to that, but I think, yes, you could do that. And the zero knowledge proofs can happen completely independent as part of this digital credential, right? And Mm -hmm. it could be enabled for zero knowledge proofs, but then you might use sign in with Ethereum. If you wanted to associate it with your Ethereum address or you decide not to do it.
1: And just to really drive this point home, because I remember, I think I was listening to a podcast when I had the same aha moment and it was that bartender metaphor that really did it for me where You're going into a bar and the bouncer or the bartender says, hey, can I see your ID? So you give them your ID. Uh And what do you do when you give them your ID? You give them your date of birth. Uh You give them your home address. Uh You give them your weight your height your eye color there's a bunch of extra information that you give this bartender and you actually don't even need to give the bartender your date of birth you just need to prove to them that you are older than 21 years (laughs) you don't need to tell them how old you just need to prove on a binary yes or no basis yes I'm older than 21 years old and so Wayne what you're saying you Mm -hmm. can do is you can take that data of a driver's Mm -hmm. license put it in your identity vault Mm -hmm. and then if this exchange website that Ryan trying to sign up for wants to understand that yes, I am a citizen of the United States and I'm not on an OFAC list. You can put that through a zero knowledge proof. And out of that zero knowledge proof comes a binary answer saying Ryan Sean Adams is a citizen of the United States and he's not on an OFAC list. And it doesn't give that exchange any more information beyond that. And I think there was a term for that that you used. I think it was like minimal, uh, minimal disclosure or something. There's like an yeah. ethos about this that's in this world. Can you talk about that?
2: Yeah. Uh, so Kim Cameron commonly has his laws of identity, which has minimal disclosure as part disagree. of that. And it's a lot of the principles of people with a decentralized identity ecosystem. So I think another important thing to talk about is what is privacy? Because that's something people say over and over again at hominem, but no one really sits down and talks about what they mean by it, right? So I think speaking of other ideas that we like to draw upon in this ecosystem, there's an author, Helen Nissenbaum, who writes about contextual integrity. That's her book. And in that, she has a definition of privacy that she works off of. And that definition is having appropriate control over information flows. So it means that you're what expecting to happen happens. Maybe your medical records can be shared from your physician to a specialist, but maybe not to an advertiser. Right. So having appropriate control of your information flows might even mean that you have an ENS name that you like to be public and associated with your public twitter presence in that definition that could achieve privacy because it's doing what you want to do in terms of disclosure
0: what about some of these big problems the world is facing right now i'm wondering if signing with ethereum has a role to play here and let's talk about two it seems to me there's a big problem twitter is seeing this but everywhere is kind of seeing this Different bots, propaganda bots, for example. How can you tell what's a propaganda bot and what's a real person, you know, on Twitter? Something yeah. like this. And Elon Musk is trying to battle the bots with, yeah. I think, much limited success, right? <laughs> Does
2: this sign-in with Ethereum solve that problem? I think it solves it in that we can allow people to bring the data they want to share as part of their interaction, right? So if you sign in with Ethereum and you had an Ethereum transaction at all, that creates a really high cost of attack compared to zero, Hmm. right? That you paid a gas fee to do something. Hmm. That could be used as part of a civil prevention strategy to know that this is not a bot. If you did other things and you collected little credentials for it, then you can present those as well. So it can combine your on-chain and off-chain data in a way that you choose to you know, prove what you want to about yourself.
0: This is, by the way, where I could see nation states getting on board and getting excited about this mm-hmm. because I don't think they currently have an internet-native way to prevent propaganda bots from attacking their citizens and swaying elections. Do they? No, but like this is a solution to that potentially. but yep. there's promise in that. Um, how about how about the idea of uh, deep fakes? Um, you know, so. What, you know, all the deep mm-hmm. fake your problems, if a fake David and Ryan, somebody spun this up yeah. with, the, you know, an AI and put out a YouTube video that looked just like us and told us to buy whatever mm-hmm. scam coin. Yeah. Like this is a huge problem. <laughs> Can it solve deep fake problems and like that level of, yeah. you know, authentication?
2: So there's one mode we're experimenting with for sign-in with Ethereum where you can spawn a new random key and you can use sign-in with Ethereum to give it some powers to create credentials, issue them or do other things like access a data vault we call those session keys and basically if you used a session key to issue a data license that says, hey, I, Ryan, say that this is definitely not a deep fake, signed off by the same key that everyone knows you as, your Ethereum account, right? They can check that there was a root of trust in that Ethereum account, and it authorized that content to come out and that way anything else could just have more scrutiny versus the stuff that you uh, basically attributed as genuine content.
1: Can we go into session keys a little bit more? Like what's a web2 correlate for session keys and how is session keys kind of changing the game with how it relates to that?
2: Yeah, so I think that session keys are a way to use ethereum addresses to sign other things than ethereum transactions. Mm. And we don't always want to, you know, if you have a your private key that's very important and it's in a hardware wallet. It's good that there's some friction there before you just sign things willy nilly, right? But that creates a UX problem. Imagine if you had to use your key to sign for a lot of things like renaming a file in decentralized Dropbox or moving stuff around. And every time you got a wallet prompt to do that, that UX is really, really difficult to work around and kind of a non-starter. So what we can do instead is make a new key in the browser. And that's not a very, very secure place to keep a key. So we give it far less permissions, Mm -hmm. so it can do far less damage. And it expires automatically, very similar to a cookie. And we can interpret sign-in with Ethereum requests to give limited sets of power to that key in a way that you authorize for that session. So that's why we call it a session key. And you can use that session key to do things like access your data vault. You can use it to issue credentials. For example, if you're on a decentralized social media app and you click follow someone, maybe you sign off on a statement that, hey, I follow this person. They get a copy. You get a copy. It points to a place where you can retract that if you decide to unfollow them. And uh, basically, you can go on your merry way with all these credentials of people you've followed and uh, your followers. You can bring that with you wherever you want. Right. So session keys can enable a lot of things, and they shift us towards interactions that are just based on signing. And we don't need cookies anymore, because cookies are used to maintain sessions.
0: Can you say that? So we don't need cookies anymore. So for people who don't know what cookies are, right? I guess maybe, I don't know if we want to go the all the detail, but just a quick crash course of cookies. This is the thing that apps and websites use to track you from website to website, basically. And so they can be used for good UX, which is kind of the genesis of them, but they're also used to kind of like, you know, store data about you and maintain kind of your identity from place to place in ways that you might not want disclosed. So you just said that this could obviate the need or kill the need for cookies. Mm -hmm. That seems like that could be a very good thing for users who want to maintain sovereignty of their own identity and their privacy online. Am I reading too much into that? Or is that really what
2: you're saying? There's some nuance to it. But yes, we wouldn't need cookies in this model. So the types of cookies that really uh, erode privacy have been third party cookies. And the whole advertising industry is figuring out what to do as those go away. Uh, They are going away. So people are panicking. Third party cookie means that a different website is able to, you know, plant cookies on you and kind of track you around won't go too much into it. But and then there, cookies Um, if you've ever been to an EU website and you know it says allow all cookies or just the ones we need right well just the ones we need are typically used to maintain sessions so when you revisit the website you're still logged in right that is important to the function of the website so they can remember who you are and continue where you left off but I'm saying it's possible to shift to a system where you just show up with your keys again And you can, you know, sprinkle a little power into a session key and that can prove who you are with any of your interactions without them having to maintain this so called stateful relationship with you, having to remember you every time. You just sign and bam, it works. Kind of like sending a transaction to Ethereum. You don't have to Mm -hmm. log into Ethereum to send a transaction. You just make one.
1: And it sounds like it's just lowering the barrier to what it would take to have a private key enabled internet experience. So what you're saying is like, there's a bunch of use cases where having all of the benefits of what we've been talking about here with the sign in for Ethereum podcast, except there are many, many, many use cases on the internet where even the act of just like a drop down menu in MetaMask where you click Mm -hmm. approve is too much time and labor and attention. Like there are parts of the ways that we navigate through the web where we need it even more seamless than that. And so you're saying a session key is this like, in the background, disposable private key that has temporary limited authorizations that allow you to experience the internet in its fullest without having to be prompted to sign a message
2: all the time. Yeah, not only is the UX better, but I think there's a huge empowerment element to it too. Because if you are online in the digital world, right, and now you're able to make digital statements by signing them cryptographically, That is a huge degree of empowerment. For example, you can do things that you just can't do now. What if you wanted to give someone these photos, but just for a week? You can't hold on to them longer for that. How do you represent that? You can make a data license that says one week from this date, signed by one of your keys. And that can be linked back to you, Mm -hmm. right? So I think the ability to make digital statements, and you can view Ethereum transactions as a kind of digital statement, is a really important core primitive to moving towards decentralization.
1: So this this whole thing, this whole paradigm, is called sign in with Ethereum. But Ethereum is a blockchain mm-hmm. with like assets and stuff. Yep. So far, I don't think we've talked much about the actual role of the Ethereum blockchain as it relates mm-hmm. to sign in with Ethereum. What, what role does the blockchain play?
2: Yeah, well, without Ethereum, there would not be sign in with Ethereum, first of all. But after that, you can think of it as a network effect. Why do people want to install sign-in with Ethereum at all, right? Well, a lot of the early use cases have to do with we want to see if someone has a certain NFT or asset or something so that they can get different treatment in terms of they got the right NFT so they can do this thing. So it is authorization for a lot of these services.
1: So you said we talked about our data vault, our identity vault, where mm-hmm. we keep data private, yep. but maybe our public addresses on Ethereum are our data museums, yeah, as in like, hey, go look at my NFTs and yeah. like the other things that I've collected, all the PO apps. Is that a fair way to describe this? I think this?
2: museum is a great word that we should adopt as an industry because it gives exactly the right context because it's there on display, right? Mm-hmm. So we can think of that as a base layer that everyone can see, mm-hmm. and then you can start layering other stuff that you want depending on what digital interaction you're having.
1: But prior to this. Like to sign into a website when again we're using the, the term sign in with Ethereum, yep. but you're not making a transaction. There's no other use of the Ethereum blockchain other than the data museum utility that we just talked about, or is there something else? There's like no gas fees
0: that this requires. Right.
2: There's no gas fees, so you can make a new Ethereum address, you can sign in with Ethereum, it costs you nothing, right? But I think that what's exciting about it is you get to use what's established on the blockchain about you, but. It might also cause you to get more things, right? What if you can access another airdrop or something because you signed in with Ethereum? Now you're writing back to the blockchain. And we think that there's an opportunity to create a virtuous cycle where you're either writing back to the blockchain if you do want to showcase it in a museum or you're writing back to your data vault. And this allows us to move towards really decentralized applications.
0: Okay, so Wayne, I'm trying to understand a bit more like just getting my head wrapped around... Ethereum's role in this and identity, mm-hmm. and you mentioned when we brought this up just now, mm-hmm. uh, network effect. Yes. So Ethereum is kind of like the cedar for getting private it's keys. A bootloader. Yeah. It's a bootloader for getting private keys in everybody's hands. And how does it do that? By Ethereum becoming very useful, and I have many different Ethereum addresses because it's already very useful. So I have, <laughs> I you know already natively have kind of signed in with Ethereum. So it's a bootloader. I understand that as a piece of it. Yeah. Would it be inaccurate to call Ethereum, we call it a settlement layer for Mm -hmm. assets, Mm -hmm. right? Which is, I think, definitely the right mental model for what Ethereum actually is. Is it accurate to say it also becomes, with signing with Ethereum, a settlement layer for identity? It could be. I'm not sure that that's, okay, is that accurate or not? Like, does identity actually require the crypto economic security properties of Ethereum, or is that just sort of a a byproduct if we just seeded the world with a whole bunch of private keys? Does my
2: question make sense? It does. I do think of Ethereum as one of the most successful public key infrastructure adoption events ever, right? And that has huge implications for folks. But in addition to that, I don't think it's just that, right? I think that signing with Ethereum is the most natural way for Ethereum users to log into services, sure. Sure. And I think, is there a settlement layer for identity, which identity is already a loaded term, (laughs) but for part of it, for example, if we zoom into control of identifiers, talking about losing keys and everything, there are smart contract wallets that are multi-sig, it can serve as the base layer for that. So you use an abstracted account to sign in with, and if you lose any of those keys, you can have recovery mechanisms to build it back up, right? So in a sense, that is a settlement layer. There are also other settlement layers, too. If we need human-readable addresses, like ENS names, then you might want to have a common namespace that you can't civil attack or have two of something or double spend having the same name, right? That is an important primitive. DNS solves that for the internet.
1: Why isn't this, then, uh, log login with Bitcoin or login with Solana? Like, why aren't we calling it these things?
2: So it's important to understand that there are I think a lot of technology components specific to the Ethereum ecosystem that we really thought were constructive in building a decentralized identity ecosystems on top of. So I think that the Ethereum builders have a certain expectation about you know how you sign messages to begin with. We use an EIP-191, which is personal sign from Ethereum. And Bitcoin doesn't really have something like that. Maybe one of the Bips is similar, but then what wallet would I use to sign it with? Mm. So by being able to really zoom in on which tech stack we're able to do, we're able to have a lot of problems just solve for us. Like we we wouldn't be able to solve custody the same way that an ecosystem wallets can solve custody, right? So to add that as part of our dependency tree before we get signed in with whatever to work, it's a huge step. So we saw like a very good positioning in the ecosystem, and also as I mentioned before, there is a DAP developer ecosystem who are excited to build for their users applications in a decentralized way. Right. And these are across different portables, sports, art, engineering, they're like developer DAOs and even transportation tracking, you know, car usage and things like that, that could really benefit from these ideas of having sessions, having data vaults, having credentials issued and verified by users layered in with a lot of the stuff that you find in the public blockchain
0: i'm wondering if it takes advantage of some of ethereum's other kind of core features like so here's one great property about ethereum that's great for kind of money censorship resistant money and that is uptime the thing just never goes down it always runs is that important when it comes to signing with ethereum let's say Uh ethereum went down could you still sign in with ethereum
2: um well just with the base account you could but if you have a Dell login or abstracted account, and we can no longer look up the smart contract containing if you're actually in the delegated list or not, that part would break. right? So an entire system is built on that would break. So it's really important that that stays on for the more advanced functionality to exist in which Ethereum does serve as that settlement layer.
1: So you're just saying that Ethereum is a part of a grander tech stack and some things will break and
2: some things will be fine? It will gracefully degrade to a point, but I think a lot of the more interesting complex features require an online blockchain, and some of them just won't work at all.
0: And then how about censorship resistance, right? That's a great property for money as well. It kind of dovetails with this idea, I think, of credible ne- neutrality, which Vitalik has talked about many times at Ethereum House. Mm-hmm. And I think here's a link I'm making in my mind through this episode is this idea that you want, in order to provide a global settlement system for identity, let's say, or a global platform for identity, you want the most credibly neutral platform you're like known to humanity. Mm-hmm. And so like you can't have a corporation control it. Mm -hmm. Because why? A corporation is corporate governance, and they can be nefarious, and they can be evil. They're also located in a nation state. What happens if one nation state goes to war with another nation state, for instance? Mm -hmm. Well, then how can citizens of the warring nation trust the corporation from the original nation, right? And so you want to put your identity assets on the most credibly neutral database, if I'm even using the right term, available. And I think that property also comes into play. It certainly comes into play with money. Does it also come into play with identity? Is that instinct correct?
2: Yeah, it's certainly correct. I think we're interested in building identity protocols that are decentralized in that typically in most identity models, you have the issuer who writes statements, maybe your school says you graduated. You have the holder, maybe that's you, and you have your diploma. And you have an employer who wants to check that you went to a certain institution. They're the verifier. So issuer, holder, and verifier, right? And by decentralized identity, what I mean most is that you can play any of those roles. You can write the fact that, you know, I know David in a credential and give it to David. And David could do the same for you, right? So you could play the role of issuer, you could be a verifier, or you can be a holder. And systems that are built with this in mind without favoring any kind of large entities or something across these roles... They can just kind of exist neutrally, independently, in kind of a fractal, too. And those smaller instances can integrate and into federate into larger instances. And I think that's a very important property of neutrality and interoperability.
1: Wayne, are you familiar with Andreas Antonopoulos' Festival of the Commons idea?
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: So for bankless listeners, first, you should totally listen to Andreas Antonopoulos' Internet of Money. I listen to it. It's an audiobook, but it's also a book. And he uses a metaphor, the Festival of the Commons, which is supposed to be the opposite of the tragedy of the commons, where the more people that are in and engaging with the commons, the better it gets. And it's Mm -hmm. partly a a metaphor for the ethos of open source. The more people that contribute, the more people that are operating on this thing, the better the code becomes. And like my gut instinct is telling me that there's something about sign-in with Ethereum that is aligned with this whole festival of the commons idea. And I think that's really about how do we fill up our data vaults or identity vaults, so that there's like a party Mm -hmm. in there rather than an empty vault. Mm -hmm. Because like right now, I don't have a data vault. And if I did have a data vault, I'm not really sure what I would put into it. And so I think there's like, Kind of like this bootstrapping problem where, like, I'm not going to get a data vault because I don't know what to put in there, and no one's going to make anything for me to put into that data vault because no one has a data vault yet. But I think I think as soon as this ball starts to roll, it starts to go from an empty room into like you know a party in there. Am I tracking onto something?
2: Yeah, totally. And I think that it's going to just have to be use case driven. So there are very specific use cases that you start with, such as you know storing preferences for DApps or being. Able to bring parts of your social media graph with you, and the data vault side will just be invisible, you know, and people working on it should make sure that it is user controlled. But you won't really think about it so much. You'll just think about, oh, I'm able to, you know, load up my SoundCloud account and now all my favorite artists are loaded up because I decided to share that. And that's what you wanted to do, right? Mm-hmm. The fact that it went through a data vault you controlled is aligned with the principles, but not mm-hmm. necessary to focus on at this point. As more and more things get accumulated through these different use cases, we're going to find overlaps that you might want to present your cloud account over here, or you might want to present the fact that, you know, you're a member of this DAO over there. And I think once we start to do that, we'll think about how do you manage all the stuff in your data vault, right? So I think that's going to help the emergence over time.
1: There's a video that we – it's been a while since we talked about this video on Bankless, but it turned into a meme, I think, during the bull market. And it's of this video of this one guy at some festival somewhere, and he's just dancing, weird dancing, totally solo. He's dancing for like 20, 30 seconds. And then one more person just decides to be weird and goes and dances with this guy in the middle of this like music festival. Mm -hmm. And then like five seconds later, a third person joins, and a few seconds later, a fourth person joins. And then as you watch this video Mm – The whole entire lawn just like gets up and everyone's like dancing together. And it's just like, it just needs a little bit of a snowball to like roll. And I kind of think that's how we end up filling our data vaults is just like we have one use case, we have two use cases, and then this ball starts to roll. Is that how you see this roadmap going?
2: Yep, definitely. And I think the initial conditions that we need to align it, you know, Festivus of the Commons well, I think one of the most important things is getting everyone in the same room. Mm. So we had, you know, community calls every month and we still do on Twitter spaces where we have people like engineers and product people and just people who use wallets show up from wallet companies, from dApps users, and they're all in the room and listening about you know the problems we're experiencing, and we start to reach rough consensus around what are the problems that are important to solve. So some of the topics, for example, is um, how do you encrypt to an Ethereum address, Mm. right? Everyone has a different way of doing that. And if we just agreed on one way and the same way that we were able to agree on signing with Ethereum and figure out how it interoperates with other parts, then no one ever has to solve that problem again. And we just kind of get that core piece of the tech tree for free.
1: Right. Okay. so it sounds like um, I'm reminded of the phase in Ethereum's roadmap where all the research and development was done. Like we know that we can build it. Now we just have to build it. And it kind of sounds like this is where sign in with Ethereum is the pieces are all laid out. It's just now we need to put them together. Like there's no like hypothetical research that needs to be done. It's just a matter of like, we need people to come to consensus on things and start implementing standards.
2: Yep, exactly. And I think that that's another benefit of the Ethereum ecosystem. We're watching other developments that the Ethereum foundation and other researchers are working on, especially in zero knowledge. And we're just seeing, oh, wow, you could just take a snark and put it in this use case. And instantly you have zero knowledge applied to identity credentials instead of just the blockchain, right? So Mm -hmm. being able to just leapfrog like that, too, is another big benefit.
1: So, Wayne, I would say something like 99.99% of websites that we log into use a Web2-based login system. Mm -hmm. The thing that we are trying to disrupt. They use identity banks Mm -hmm. for us to prove our identity to them. How do we get From where we are now to where we want to be, where 99.9% of websites use login to Ethereum. How do we go from A to B?
2: Yeah, I would say it's a different model of computing that is enabled, right? You're signing in password lists, but you also have all this potential bringing your data vault, bringing your data with you, etc., right? So we have to identify the market first for where that actually makes a lot of sense for the applications, And right now that's dApps and adjacent application, let's call them Web3 enabled, Web2 platforms as well. And for them, it's actually the best thing for their user. Like Ethereum users don't want to add their email address or a phone number or something. They already have an Ethereum account. It's literally the best way for them to sign into a service, right? And then dApps actually, a lot of them don't have backend databases or they'd much prefer the user bring their own. Right. So for these demographics, it's actually the best solution. And to the extent that this ecosystem is able to prove out use cases across a bunch of different verticals, such as, you know, art, such as care, etc. And that will accumulate the value of this mode of interaction to the point where you can get enough value proposition to convince other people. If I go to, you know, large companies today who are, you know, happy with their Postgres database and I say the user can bring their own database. I'm going to get some eye rolls. But for people who don't have a database to begin with, they're actually really excited about that mode. But if the user data vault can do so much more and there's so many more privacy benefits when you sign in with Ethereum, then I think we can get to the point where we start to look at the next markets and expand from there. Right? So that's how I'm conceptualizing it.
0: Wayne, just summarize this for us as we start to draw to a close here. Okay, so sign in with Ethereum. What does this do for humanity? What does this do for people? on the internet, the human beings that we all care so much about. We talked about shifting power back to the individual. Is that the core feature here? Bottom line this for us, why did you decide to take on this problem? And why is it personally important to you? And what do you think it can achieve for the world?
2: Sign in with Ethereum is one of the first steps to letting users control their data across the web. Using public-private key cryptography, we're able to just enable new modes of interaction that are user-centric at core. Issuing credentials, being able to write permission stacks as data, moving to a model where instead of logging into the platform, the platform logs into your data fault. I think that all this is possible when you switch to signing with Ethereum because of the direct authentication and builder ecosystem after that.
0: Wayne, thank you so much for being with us today. Dave and I are super bullish on this technology. I tweeted this back a couple of years ago. And I think it remains true, and I'm even more bullish about it. There will be two phases of crypto. In phase one, we take back our money. In phase two, we take back our identity. I think we are entering phase two. Signing with Ethereum is a key part of that strategy, and this makes me optimistic about the world. And ultimately, that is why David and I are in crypto. Why I hope you, Bankless listener, are in crypto. Wayne, it sounds like that's why you are building in crypto as well. So we appreciate your time and thanks for all the work towards this mission.
2: Really grateful to be here. Thank you.
0: Action items for you today, Bankless Nation. Go to the Spruce website. That is spruceid.com. You can also read about the EIP we've been talking about. The original signing with Ethereum EIP. That's EIP 4361. We'll include a link in the show notes. It's a little light reading. Not too bad on that EIP. Have you ever read an EIP, uh, Bankless listener? Because oh. now today is your opportunity. I thought you were about <laughs> to ask me, David. And I know you didn't ask me <laughs> if I've read an EIP. I've authored an EIP, my friend. Um, That's a different story for barely. <laughs> <laughs> and disclaimers, guys. Of course, you gotta let you know, crypto is risky. You could lose what you put in, but your identity is something that you will never lose. Hopefully, if we get signed in Ethereum humming. We're headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we're glad you're with us on the Bankless journey. Thanks a lot.